This is Murder in the Black with Steph and M.D. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. I am so excited to be back with you guys. But first of all, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day in my Andre 3000 voice. If you haven't heard that song, definitely check that out. I know it was yesterday, y'all, but I have to say it anyway. And, you know, for the most part here on Murder in the Black, we're all adults. And I have to get you through the rest of the work week so that you can go ahead and enjoy whatever Valentine's Day plans you have. You know, so I'm here to do my job. That's it. And that's all. We're going to spread love like it's the Brooklyn way because that's what Biggie says. So I'm here to place a bet. And we usually don't do this. I'm going to bet my dime to your nickel that you did not know about the current black history fact that I'm going to share with you. Her name is Mary Kenner. She was born in North Carolina and eventually moved out to Washington, D.C. because she was accepted to go to the illustrious HBCU, Howard University, the real HU. And she eventually had to drop out from Howard University because of financial issues, which is such a shame because she was a brilliant mind. She came from a family of inventors and I highly encourage you to go and read about her because her father was an inventor, her grandfather was an inventor, and they invented some things that you may have heard of or may not have heard of. So definitely go and check her out. But I want to tell you that she invented what you know as the modern maxi pad, right? So in 1954 and in 1956, she was granted and patented with the invention of what she dubbed the elastic sanitary belt. The invention was described as the eliminator for the chafing and irritation normally caused device of its class. However, the company that first showed interest of her invention, the soon Nat Pat company, rejected it after they discovered that she was an African-American. Kenner never made any money from the sanitary bill because her patent expired and became public domain, allowing it to be manufactured freely. She later invented a modification of the sanitary belt that included a moisture-resistant pocket. In an interview, Mary Kenner said, One day I was contacted by a company that expressed an interest in marketing my idea. I was so jubilant. I saw houses and everything about to come my way. A representative made their way to Washington to speak with Kenner, and she continues to explain that they had rejected her by saying, sorry to say, when they found out I was black, their interest dropped. The representative went back to New York and informed me the company was no longer interested. Now, Kenner went on to 
make a lot more inventions, which included a walker for people who were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis because her sister was diagnosed with MS later on in life. She went on to get married to a former heavyweight champion uh, named Kenner. In Washington, D.C., she lived out her life in Washington, D.C., and later died in January of 2006. And she was quoted by saying that anybody can create. All you have to do is put your mind to it. I heavily encourage you guys to go and look up more about Mary Kenner. She was a beautiful, beautiful mind and highly intelligent. And that is our Black History fact for today. Grab your coffee if it's the morning, grab your lemonade if it's the afternoon, but most certainly grab your wine if it's the evening. Either way, we're about to get into it. I've entitled this case, Preacher's Kids. When we catch up with the Taylor family, it's January 12, 2002. There's a big celebration happening and... T, who is affectionately known to his family, but his name is Sylvester Jr., is coming back home from the military. It is his birthday, and he shares a birthday with his Aunt Kelly. Now, Aunt Kelly is in nursing school, and they always have birthdays pretty much together, but they're having this birthday together and they're just looking for any reason to be real honest with you to get together and have a celebration. And isn't that really just like most black families? Like we love having a celebration and we will get together and celebrate a one-year-old's birthday and make that a whole party, right? If we could. And so this is very similar to them. They loved having a joyous occasion and loved having good family time together, good food, a fun time, good conversation. And at the epicenter of this fun time and good conversation was Angela. And Angela was T's mother. Angela was the epicenter And really the hostess with the Moses. And honestly, when I think about the hostess with the Moses, I say that often. But when I think about who that person is, they're really the organizer of the fun. They're the person that's going to come up with a good theme. They're the the person that's going to tell you exactly what to bring to the event. They're going to tell you what to do once you get to the event. They're going to tell you how to do it. And so they're really the person that's in charge of getting everybody together and telling you what your role is. And honestly, Angela just was the person to love on everyone. And if there was any type of contention within the family, she was going to make sure that that was smoothed over. Anybody threatening not to come, she was going to make sure that you came so she could smother you in love and kisses and just love on you and make sure that everything was okay. She was that for the Taylor family and everybody loved her. And so she was going to tell you exactly what to do. And the person that she told exactly what to do was her husband. She told her husband, Sylvester Sr., he was in charge of the food. And part of the reason why she told him in part that he was in charge of the food is because he could cook. He could he could get down in the kitchen on some food. And he was in charge of 
the vibe of the house. He could control the vibe of the house and keep the party going. He can make sure that you were okay, that, you know, your spirits were up. And, you know, the thing that I just love about black culture, right? And I want to highlight that because we still are in Black History Month, is that it's always a guaranteed good time. We're going to make sure that whoever you bring around us, if we're having a celebration, if we're having a party, you're, they're going to have a good time. It's going to be a good time. We're listening to music. We're playing spades. We're eating. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be good food. It's going to be good music. It's going to be good vibes, right? It's always going to be a celebration. And the one thing that I love about reading about birth order is that, you know, regardless of where you fall inside of the birth order, there's a lot of information about that person's perspective. Like the youngest is going to have a different perspective versus the oldest and versus the middle. And, you know, as you have more kids, the more perspectives that person is going to have. But let's face it, the oldest person, especially based on what psychologists have to say, they truly have a bird's eye view on what the, you know, what the parents think, and then also what the other children have to think because they've been around the longest, right? And so Mark Tenio was the oldest son and he was Sylvester Sr.'s son from a previous relationship. So he'd been around the longest and not only that, he was not in the household with the other siblings all the time because he lived with his mother. But he was inside the household, you know, he you know, off and on, right? Like so he would come every other weekend and he was there enough and he was there the longest. So his opinion of Angela and Angela's relationship with Sylvester was very interesting. And then also his opinion of the other children was also interesting as well. And what he had to say about Sylvester and Angela's relationship was that their relationship was very loving. He said they had a loving relationship and he loved their dynamic. He could always tell that they loved each other. He also said that Mark, that, that him and uh, Sylvester's relationship, T's relationship was a good relationship as well. And to be quite honest, it's kind of funny because immediately upon seeing Martinio, I laugh because Martinio looks exactly like Sylvester. Whereas when you see T, Sylvester Jr., he looks exactly like Angela. And the first thing that comes out of Martinio's mouth is that he says, What's so funny is that T and I growing up, you know, we always laugh because I look exactly like my dad, but I'm not named after him. So when we were growing up, T would laugh because he would be like, man, you should be named after dad, not me. He was like, you're lucky you're not named after dad. And so they would joke on each other. He said, we just grew up with a lot of laughter. We grew up with a lot of love. There was always a lot of laughter and a lot of love in our household. And he said, now Latanya, who was the baby of the family. So in Angela and Sylvester Sr.'s relationship, they had T, Sylvester Jr., and they had Latanya. Now, I'll be 
referring to Latanya as Tanya for the duration of the episode because that's what they affectionately called her and that's what I'll be calling her for the rest of the episode as well. Now, he said that T and Tanya's relationship was very close because they grew up in that household full time with each other as Mark Martinio was just more transient because he was off and on back and forth between he and his mom's between his dad and his mom's household. Now, he said they were very, you know, they were clowns. They would laugh, and but they were very, very close. Now, he said they had a lot of pressure growing up because they were preacher's kids. And he also was a preacher's kid as well. But he said he did not have the same pressure because he was not full-time in the household. And I know what you're thinking as you're listening. You know, you're probably having your own, you know, thoughts about a preacher's kid you know and what that means for you and you either may be a preacher's kid listening to this or you have your own thoughts about the preacher's kids that you grew up with and how they turned out and what you think about preacher's kids and we'll dig into that a little further but martinio said that they just felt a lot of pressure and what that meant for them growing up. They just, they couldn't, you know, kind of shake that pressure of what it meant to be that. And they were trying to figure that out as they were growing up. Now, you might think that the pastor was Sylvester and that the first lady was Angela, but that was not the case at all. The pastor was Angela. Angela had been pastoring her own church for 11 years. And that was her joy. She had a passion for it. She absolutely loved it. And Sylvester Sr. was more in the background. He found his joy being in the background actually serving. And he served the church and the ministry as a deacon And really, he was described in the family for being known for his love, his faith, and his service. And so as you kind of like double back and think about all the things that I mentioned about this celebration that they just celebrated in, um, you know, January, as I described who the epicenter was, who the person who was leading the event, you know, the hostess with the mostest, the organizer of the event, it kind of like really reiterates their roles, right? The person who was leading it, the pastor, it was Angela. And the person who was more in the background reinforcing Angela, backing her up was Sylvester Sr. So it kind of just really doubles and reiterates the roles and who they really were in the real in their in their careers, right? In their real life goals. In their real life goals, not goals, but in their real life careers, it kind of reiterates that, right? And so that's that's what was going on in their lives. That's really what was happening. And Martinio just really kind of reinforced that they were really dealing with T and Tanya were really dealing with these pressures of being a preacher's kid. So you may or may not know, but MD and I obviously are sisters. A lot of you may know that, but 
we have said probably on here maybe once or twice that our dad is a preacher and he has been in ministry for 36 years. So obviously we're preachers kids and we have not gone into any type of depth or conversation about what that means to us or what type of experiences we've had with that. But since we're talking about preacher's kids, I would like to go into like a mini discussion about what that means to me and what that is like for a preacher's kid. Um, I'm not going to go into any type of real deep, deep dive about that. It's not necessary. But as a child of a preacher, discussing my background was something I refrained from doing during my teenage and college years, I would not discuss what my dad did as a career. And I wouldn't discuss it because I would face a lot of judgment and harsh judgment from people, especially boys and even some girls who would be very catty and curt with me. And they would judge me and say things like, oh, that means you're freaky or oh, that means you're bad or worse than because your dad's a preacher. And I was often told that I was inferior or morally lacking compared to others. However, as I became more mature, I came to realize that it was not my responsibility to internalize those opinions. I now acknowledge my mistakes and seek reconciliation with God whenever I do make mistakes because I do and I am going to continue to make mistakes. Now, the challenges that a lot of preacher's kids face by others is the pressures to be perfect. And because they have the pressure to be perfect, they seemingly rebel. And really, as a teenager, as you're growing up, that's when a lot of that pressure is on when you're a teenager. That's when a, when I felt a lot of my pressure as a preacher's kid was when I was a teenager in my parents' household. And I did not feel a lot of pressure from adults directly. It was more indirect because they would be talking to their kids inside of their household. Oh, look at Steph or oh, look at pastor's kids. And they would hear that in their households, their parents talking about us. And then their kids would then, then come to me and talk crap about me. You know what I mean? And those were the things that T and Tanya felt. So it's a lot of external pressure to be held on this platform. And you're like, golly, I can't do that. I can't handle that. I just want to be a normal teenager. I just want to be normal. I just want to have the same bandwidth that these other teenagers have to be normal. And those are the pressures that preacher's kids feel. Let's get back to the story. At 15 years old, Tanya found out that she was pregnant with her first child. She was absolutely devastated. You know, everything that I just summated in becoming, being a preacher's kid, you can imagine how she felt when she found out that she was pregnant. 
she didn't know how she was going to tell her parents. She she felt like her whole entire world was over. And that's how most teenagers feel whenever they're faced with any hard decision. But, you know, when you're a child finding out that you're going to have a child of your own, faced with this insurmountable pressure to be perfect, knowing that you have all of this pressure from outside, in, you know, forces, you know, how was she going to tell her parents? Was everything really and truly going to be okay? So Tanya actually got pregnant by a guy named Nathan Holden. Nathan was a guy that her family knew. Her parents knew him. She actually knew him in grade school. He was a sweet kid. They were best friends. Now, Nathan took her to prom in the summer of 1998. She discovered that she was pregnant by the summer and despite being so very, very nervous, she sat her mother down and she said, hey, mom, I'm pregnant. And she just knew that her entire world was going to crumble. I mean, she didn't know what her parents were going to say. She didn't know what Angela was going to say, but she told her anyway. And Angela did the exact opposite of what she anticipated. Angela said, okay. I mean, I'm disappointed. There's consequences. I mean, but your world's not over. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. Because after all, you know, babies are blessings. And I think it's such a blessing that Angela enforced all the values that she instilled in Tanya T and Mark Tonio when they were being raised. That that faith that she instilled in them, yeah, oh yeah, by the way, that's real. That's not fake. We weren't doing that for fun. This is not phony. This is real. And that's what she applied. Now, when Tanya sat down and had that same conversation with Nathan, well, the conversation didn't go so well. Because Nathan didn't believe that the baby was his. So it went from them being in a relationship with one another to it really being a conversation about him not believing the baby was his. So they went to being in a relationship to now this is really just being about paternity and us establishing paternity and we're no longer in a relationship. So nine months passed, and in April of 1999, Tanya gives birth to her first son, Jeremy. Three months pass, and Nathan doesn't come and visit their son. Now, at the end of three months, Nathan finally comes, meets his son. He holds Jeremy, and he knows that Jeremy is his. And how, do you might ask? Well, Jeremy looks exactly like Nate. And he feels bad. He feels bad that he wasn't there for the entire nine months. He has allowed three months to pass additionally. And honestly, Tanya doesn't even want him to feel bad. She just feels like, listen, be present 
from henceforth show up, be a father. And we don't really know if they got a DNA DNA test and paternity was established. But from that point on, he starts to show up. Right when Jeremy is born, Angela pulls Tanya to the side and tells her once again, I want you to know that you have both your father and I's full support and we will raise Jeremy as our child so that you can go back and go to high school, get your diploma. You can even go to college if that is what you so desire. We will raise him as our own. And I want to say parenthetically that she didn't really mean that she wanted Jeremy as her own. She had raised her kids, but Tanya was their youngest child and she was just 15 when she got pregnant. And by the time Jeremy came out, she was 16. She didn't want Tanya to feel that she had to give up on herself, that all that all her dreams and hopes and aspirations had been dashed since she had Jeremy. She wanted her to know that she had their full support. And with being equipped and knowing that she had the support of her parents, she really did feel the encouragement and the support that she could go back to college and back to high school and finish her educational dreams and aspirations and know that she did have the support of her family behind her. So Latanya graduated high school in June of 2000 with Jeremy and Nathan by her side. And Nate really was present from the time that he visited the baby after the three months that he was born. He really was a present father. He started showing up and he had to grow up kind of fast. I mean, honestly, both of them did. They were young parents. He had a job. He was finishing high school. He also started cutting hair on the side. On December 7, 2002, Nate and Tanya got married at their parents' church. Nate committed to the relationship and Jeremy, which was something that they all wanted to see. And to be quite honest, like when you think of the nature of Nate's relationship with the entire family, T said, Marktonio said, um, that really they all thought of Nate as like a brother already. He was already, he felt like a brother. They already thought of him as a brother prior to them getting married. And according to T, Sylvester Sr. spoke at the wedding and he gave a speech. And this speech was very impactful to the family in general, but it was really impactful to Tanya. T spoke that the nature of the speech in general was just about the fact that Sylvester Sr. really was impressed that Nate finally committed to the relationship and he really saw a change in Nate. According to T, Sylvester Sr. really saw a lot in Nate that he saw in himself because Sylvester Sr. did a very similar thing that Nate had done. When Sylvester Sr. met Angie, they met on their college campus. And soon after they met, Sylvester Sr. got Angela Angela pregnant. And they got pregnant with T. 
And a lot of her educational goals and along with her passion for becoming a minister was delayed. Now, we don't know much about what happened to her educational goals, but we do know that she eventually went into the ministry. And he dealt a lot with PTSD from Vietnam and being a veteran. And eventually they were able to, you know, get out of college. And she was eventually able to get into the ministry, eventually having Tanya, etc. But we know that a lot of things were delayed because they got pregnant early on, you know, in college etc. And he eventually committed to Angie and they got married. But he saw a lot of himself in Nate, which just makes you think a little deeper into why maybe Angie said the things that she said to Tanya, you know, when Tanya first had Jeremy. Is that perhaps why she told Tanya, hey, listen, I'll take care of Jeremy. Don't give up on your education. Don't give up on your dreams. Don't give up on fulfilling them. Perhaps that's why the family in general, you know, really helped to support their relationship. Perhaps that's why, you know, Sylvester Sr. got up and made that speech. It's just these little um, little nuances that you see inside of this case that make you kind of compare and contrast the two couples. And so really everything was on the up and up. Everyone loved Nate. They felt like this solidified their bond. And they really felt this 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 family coming together and really pursuing this family unit. It was a really good relationship and with the help of her parents and the support of Nate and Jeremy Tanya was able to complete her college to complete college in the summer of 2004 and she graduated with her bachelor's in business administration from North Carolina Central University in Durham and Durham a year later they moved into their Aunt Laura Jean's home. Now, it was vacant, and Aunt Laura Jean told Tanya that they could live there for free if they did all the repairs, and so they gladly moved in. Now, Nate completed barber school, and he was working in the barbershop, and his career was going well. She completed all of her education. Everything was truly on the up and up. And by 2005, Tanya got pregnant with their first daughter and she had their daughter, Nautica. And a year later, they had their last child, Amber, in 2006. Now, this was a joyous, happy time for their very young family. They were growing they were really in the foundational time of their marriage. But, you know, during those times where you're growing and you're really, you know, building your relationship and your marriage, this time can be a really happy time. And I think it is a happy time. But it also can be a time of of growing pains, right? Like where it can be happy, but you're also having times of tension, 
right? And so it's it's stress in the relationship. So I want to ask you guys, and I want you to answer this question in the question section of our episode. Why do you think when you are actively growing your family and let's say you're 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 getting pregnant and you're having babies why is that time stressful as well like just as it is happy why is it still stressful and why do marriages experience stress during this time because this is when Tanya also notices after having their third baby they start to experience a lot of stress inside of the home. Now, she says that she decided to be a stay-at-home mom for five years. So they decide to live off of one income. Nate had to work two jobs in order to create, you know, some financial dependency within the household. So obviously, they're fighting about, you know, finances and there's some financial tension within the house uh, within the household she notices some distance in the marriage and mark tinio and t said that they start to hear some rumblings inside of the the small town that they live in that nate is doing some things that he shouldn't be doing in terms of being on the wrong side of the law now they don't say exactly is it is it him stealing is it him accepting money that he shouldn't be accepting they don't go into what that necessarily means but they just say he's on the wrong side of the law now they move from aunt Aunt lord jean's house and they don't say why but they move from aunt lord jean's house to jonesville now They give me the impression that Jonesville is not the best area. So those of you who live in North Carolina, y'all tell me, is Jonesville, is it a shady area? Is it not the best? Let me know. But it seems to not be the best place to live. Now, the one thing that Tanya says is that according to most, everybody says during this particular time when they moved to Jonesville, that everything in their relationship seems to be good. If you were to look at their relationship during this particular time, everything looks great. But truly, they weren't happy. Like, their relationship was terrible during this time. And everything that glitters ain't gold and all gold ain't reality. Nate starts hanging out with friends from high school. He starts drinking alcohol, staying out late, and everything is starting to go downhill very fast. She's feeling neglected. She's also simultaneously going through postpartum depression. She just had her last baby. She has no real support from him at all. And she's functioning. And for some people... It's easy to show up as a mother, right? It's easy to show up and make sure that your kids are good. And so for her, that was the case. She would always show up and make sure her kids were fed off to school, off to daycare, whatever the case may be. But when she would come home at night and be there by herself, she would cry her eyes out. And she would just go through depression, a deep depression. And so things were bad. They were more than bad. And she felt no support. 
But in addition to, she told Nate, she said, hey, listen, their number one rule was do not cut hair inside the home. Number one, she was still a stay-at-home mom, right? So that means she still had her little little babies at home with her. So she was at home all the time. She did not feel like she would be comfortable with having multiple men inside the house. So all that foot traffic, all that money exchanging hands. So she told him, I'm not comfortable with you cutting hair inside of the house. But he decided that he was going to do it anyway. So she's trying to she's trying to be okay with that, but she's not. She makes that clear that she's not, but he does it anyway. So in 2009, there's an incident that occurs, and there's three to four guys that come in. Now, she's not at home, but their oldest son is. Three to four guys come in, and they're loud, and they come in, and they pistol whip him in the front area of the house, in the living room. Jeremy is in the back. He pulls the covers over him, trying to make sure that nobody knows that he's at home. They demand for their money to Nate. Nate said he doesn't have the money. They pistol whip him good. He comes to the back. Nate comes to the back to where Jeremy is at. And Jeremy sees that his dad's face is bloody. Nate calls the police, files a police report that these men that he knew robbed him. And Tanya is just disgusted because she feels like I told you that these men or that this like a situation like this was going to happen. And then you I feel like you you caused this. You made this happen because I told you this was going to happen. So she's. You know, she just is like, this is dumb. I told you this was going to happen. It happened. I'm going to take me and my kids and we're going to stay at my parents' house. And it it shook Nathan to his core that this incident happened. And so she doesn't go back to that house in Jonesville. She She snatches up her kids and she leaves. He eventually leaves as well. So as a result of that incident that happens... They get involved more at Angela's church. And Tanya gets involved in the music ministry and coaching and teaching the younger kids. Whereas Nate gets involved in ushering and in the recording program at the church. Now, Nate starts to be a little bit more supportive of Tanya and the family and now we're leading up to Christmas and things are starting to look more on the up and up. You know, they're trying to turn their marriage around. Now, the kids are excited about Christmas. I mean, kids love Christmas. I mean, they just I love the fact that kids love Christmas and the older you get. And if you have kids, the older you get, the more excitement you draw from the kids being excited about Christmas. And Tanya draws that excitement from her kids. And she's trying to be excited about, you know, her and her husband and and possible reconciliation in the relationship. But honestly, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And Nate and Tanya's relationship, they just have a lot of deep-rooted issues in their relationship. And a lot of the things are 
remaining the same in their relationship. And so there were rumors of infidelity. She never caught him doing anything. There was never definitive proof that he was cheating, but he was very selfish. I mean, he was still going out. He was still hanging out with that, that crowd. And there were just a lot of series of events that were building up for Tanya. And she was really trying to give her marriage a second shot. But there were things that kept happening with Nate that just kept, you know, just blow after blow that kept beating her down, so to speak, that kept making and making her feel like, I don't know how much more I can take. So in April of 2011, an incident occurs and Nate claimed to be at a bar shooting pool and he eventually leaves and he claimed that police were watching him. And they said he looked suspicious, so they pulled him over. And that's when they found drugs in his possession, cocaine. Now, they gave him they gave him a 12-month suspended sentence for the cocaine in his possession. And, of course, he said the drugs were not his. Now, his behavior at this point is getting out of control. Let's review. There was a incident at the house in Jonesville where some guys came and roughed him up about some money that he owed them. Now they find cocaine in your possession. You claim that's not your drugs. Okay. She's trying to Stick it out. She's trying to figure out what is going on with your behavior. But obviously, something is not right. So Jeremy, their oldest son, was quickly growing up. And on this particular afternoon, Jeremy was walking back home from school with his cousin. Now, Jeremy was the king of the basketball court. And his cousin challenged him to a quick pick-me-up game in basketball because his cousin thought that he could beat Jeremy in a game of basketball. Well, Jeremy said, no way you can beat me because in a game of basketball. So his cousin says, Cap, I can most definitely beat you. Let's have a quick game. So they go to the basketball court and Jeremy, of course, beats his cousin and then walks back home. Upon walking into the house, he goes to his room, puts down his basketball and his backpack, and Nate walks into the room. Nate asks him, where had he been? Jeremy goes through his thoughts and tells his dad how he just kicked his cousin in a game of basketball. And Nate interrupts him and asks him, where was he supposed to go upon leaving school? And that's when it hits Jeremy. He was not supposed to play basketball because the number one rule was to, when he gets out of school, to immediately walk home. So... He knew that he was about to either get a thump on the head, like he always does, or his dad was going to put him on punishment for the rest of the weekend. And he anxiously waited for one of the two. So when his dad walked out of the room angrily, he knew that he probably was about to go get the belt and he was about to get a spanking. Well, 
It was his punishment. He deserved it, he thought. But when his dad walked back in the room with a broom and proceeded to beat him in the back with the broom, he was not expecting that. And his dad beat him so viciously with the broom that it broke in two pieces. This was not at all what he had expected. He was absolutely out of control. Now, I have to say that disciplining your child is one thing, but Nathan was out of control and this was absolutely abuse. And you have to understand that Jeremy fully idolized his father. He thought that his father was the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so when his father became unhinged and beat him the way that he did with the broom, all of that changed that day. And Tanya knew that based on all of the series of unpredictable behavior that he exhibited before, but when he messed with her child, she knew that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. So that day she told him that she was taking her kids and that she was going to file for divorce and she was going to separate from him. And she did just that. And it was clear that when she told him that day that he did not believe that she was going to do that. He didn't believe that she was capable of leaving him. He felt like she needed him. But she did just that. She moved on and she moved in with her parents. And he became unglued. In December of 2013... Harassment calls began from Nate. He called her parents and said that he was coming to get the kids and that they couldn't do anything to stop him. He began threatening both her parents and Tanya. She was absolutely scared because he never acted this way. So she really didn't know how to combat this type of behavior because it never happened prior to this. She goes to the police. They instruct her to file a restraining order. Once she does so, this only intensifies the behavior and it escalates. By April of 2014, Tanya makes a 911 phone call to the Johnston County Police Department. At 948, the phone call says that her husband, Nate, has shot her father. She hangs up and then another phone call was made. Once she hangs up, though, they dispatch the deputies to the scene. Once they dispatch, another phone call was placed by Jeremy. He screams into the phone that his grandparents have been shot and, and so has his mom. When officers arrive, Children are screaming and panicking inside of the household. Now, I want to be clear that officers have a lot to do before they can even start to do anything once they arrive. Officers are responsible for having to get the children out of the house, right? And then they have to give aid to both Angie Sylvester and Tanya while ensuring that Nate is either apprehended 
or that he's gone from the scene. And they have to do that all within a couple of minutes. That is a lot for police to do. So officers secure the perimeter. Then they go inside to get aid to everybody that's involved. And right when they go inside, right off the entryway, they see a room. And in that room, Angie Taylor is the first person that they see. She has a gunshot wound to her chest. She was deceased due to her injury. And in another bedroom, they find Latanya. And she was severely beaten. She had multiple gunshot wounds to her chest and to her face. Her injuries were critical and life-threatening. They rushed her immediately to a hospital in Riley. She was speaking and she was saying she couldn't breathe. Now, there was a trail of blood from the house to the backyard, which led police to the body of 66-year-old Sylvester Taylor. He was beside the shed and he had been shot multiple times in multiple parts of his body. Now, a relative called T, which was Sylvester Jr., and told him the devastating news that Angie and Sylvester were deceased and they did not know if Tanya would survive. That phone call changed the Taylor family for forever. They would never be the same. Now, the police's main focus at this time was to find Nate. They needed to find him, and Jeremy was the witness. He was the main witness, and because he was able to give a full description of what Nate was wearing and the truck he was driving, he gave them all the information that they needed to know in order to catch him. Now, their main focus was really, what was his state of mind? Like, was he going to harm himself Was he trying to kill anybody else? They really wanted to apprehend him to ensure the safety of the public and to to ensure the safety of himself. Now, Nate's family had a property that was nearby. And so they wanted to go and check that property out because they felt like if he would be anywhere, more than likely he would be there. And it was a wooded area. And by the time they were going out to check, it was nighttime. So they had to, you know, put on all of this protective gear, have flashlights. And once they were out there, they saw a flash and then heard gunfire. So they fired upon return. And it was a lot of gunfire that went back and forth. They saw the suspect near and Nathan was on the ground. Now, I know what you're thinking is probably what I'm thinking. They shot him. No, they did not. He was not injured in any way. And he was not deceased either. So, He really just kind of gave up in hopes that they would give up trying to look for him, like in hopes that they kind of just were like, oh, he's probably dead and then leave. What a dummy. Right. So they handcuffed and arrested him and arrested him for two counts of first degree murder, one count of attempted murder. So really, Jeremy was the one who really gave us a perspective of what happened that night and he was the witness to that crime 
And I'm so sad to say that he was a witness to that crime because he is forever traumatized by what happened and what he saw. According to him, Nathan picked him up from school that day and they got something to eat. And Nate was completely upset because, according to him, Tanya wasn't answering any of his phone calls. He was really upset because that relationship was completely falling apart. It was over. And he said they were on the highway and Nathan was speeding. He had Tupac playing loud and Jeremy was really concerned that he had a look in his eyes. They arrive at Tanya's parents' home and he tells Jeremy to go inside first. He goes to the door and Sylvester Sr. greets him and says, boy, why are your pants sagging so low? He didn't say anything to him. And then he went straight to the back and gave his mom a big hug. A couple of minutes later, he hears gunshots. Nate walks in. And so those first gunshots are him shooting Angela, right? So Nate walks in, shoots Angela in her bedroom, and then Nate shoots Sylvester outside. Then comes back in, and according to Jeremy, Tanya rushed the kids in and puts them in his sister's room and in the closet. That's when Tanya makes a phone call to 911. She says, my husband is shooting. So... At this point, after shooting Sylvester Sr. in the back, in the backyard near the shed, he comes in, Nate does, comes into the room, and he starts punching and calling Tanya all types of bees and hoes, and he starts punching her in the face, pistol whipping her, And Tanya is yelling, saying she was sorry. She said, Jesus. And then there was a gunshot. Then it was dead silence. The closet door opens. Nate tries to give one of his sisters or both of his sisters a hug, but they're both very scared of him and they get behind Jeremy. He tries to give Jeremy a hug. Nate calls 911, puts his wallet on the table, and says that he loves them. He sees, Nate sees Tanya on the floor, and so does Jeremy. Jeremy says his mother was covered in blood and it was everywhere. He takes a big, Nate takes a big step over Tanya and leaves. And Jeremy describes all of this in this documentary that I watched. And he says that he still sees nightmares of his father taking a big jump over his mother. And he says, it just means he doesn't care. And he's in tears. He just says he doesn't care about my mom. He just didn't care about what he did. So on April 16th, 2014, Latanya wakes from a medical-induced coma. And the first person that she asked for was her mom. And she was told that she didn't make it. And Nate Holden was 
set for trial February 2017, two weeks of trial. A jury found him guilty of two counts of first degree murder, and he was guilty of attempted murder, sentenced to life with the without the possibility of parole. And T remarked that although his parents are gone, they are going to be okay. And they continue to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Takeaway. Nathan Holden's actions, which resulted in the tragic death of his in-laws and attempted attack on Latanya, were driven by the apparent feeling that Latanya was moving on without him. Rather than actively working to resolve the issues within his marriage, he resorted to extreme measures involving external forces. This situation underscores the importance of actively addressing and resolving internal relationship challenges in order to sustain them. It suggests that in any type of relationship, whether romantic or otherwise, proactive efforts are indispensable in order to nurture and maintain it. Otherwise, accepting the need to let go when essential becomes crucial. Listen, he was so selfish. I believe that his selfishness was highlighted in this true crime case. I think that he was selfish from the time that he was 17 years old and he got Latanya pregnant when he decided he didn't want to be a part of the pregnancy. He waited almost four months to go and see his child. Then, you know, him being selfish throughout when she decided to stay at home and and she felt alone and just highlight it was his selfishness was highlighted throughout this particular case and I really think he did not believe that she would move on and I think he hated the fact that she could depend on her parents and I think some people they don't understand that some people have that type of relationship with their parents that their parents truly love them and in this situation with Tanya he really wanted to hurt her and that is part of the reason why he attacked her parents I don't think he really had any maliciousness in his heart against her parents like I think he shot her parents he attacked them because he wanted to hurt her because he did not like the fact that she could depend on them and some people really truly do hate the fact that you can depend on your parents and so he really wanted to get back at her and part of that was killing her parents and when it's all said and done he did not want to take responsibility for the fact that he allowed his marriage to be ruined because he could have held on to that marriage. I think Tanya was trying to hold on to her marriage. She was trying to give him another chance. But when he attacked Jeremy, when he attacked her child, she he took every reason that she could possibly have to hold on to that marriage. And so, you know, you can't you can't blame anybody but yourself. And I hate 
the fact that he took those precious individuals away from Tanya and the Taylor family because I found so many I found myself so much in this case more than the obvious things that you guys are probably thinking about like oh you found yourself because you're a preacher's kid no I it was it was more than that like I found more of myself in this case probably than I did in any other any of the other cases that I done here on Murder in the Black um but uh, my deepest condolences go out to the Taylor family, their beautiful response, uh, T's beautiful response and how he responded um, at the very end of the case. It's, it's just a beautiful response. But I'm interested to see if you guys have heard of this case. Did you know about it? Um, I know I did not. I had never heard of this case before. So let me get let me know what you guys think in the question section of today's case. Interested to know what you guys think. Um, let's go ahead and get into our question section from last week's case. All right, I did not put up a poll last week I was going to but I feel like y'all interacted a lot more with the question so I think I'll split that up sometimes I'll do polls sometimes I'll do both you know we'll split it up so last week I asked you about the Irwin brothers what did you think about the episode somebody said I don't think weed is a gateway drug totally agree by the way He said, if that were true, the drug pandemic would be so much worse. Great episode. Never heard of it before. Bless their poor parents. E. Sanders said, straight fire. Herb is not a gateway drug. DeWitt said, must admit, I never heard of this family and I live in Atlanta. First thing I thought was the Menendez brothers could be spoiled children who couldn't have their way. ML Orr said, great episode. My mouth was on the floor. I have two sons. This story shows how important it is to be tuned in to your kids. Definitely agree. Now, our poll question this week, because we will have a twofer, meaning we will have a question section where you guys can type in your answers, because I definitely want to hear what you guys think about being a preacher's kid, want to hear your thoughts about that, want to hear your thoughts about the breakdown of a marriage, what do you think the contributing factors are when you're building your family distance, all the things that I asked you in the episode, so want to hear your response there. But then I also want to ask you a poll question. So here's the poll question. And it has nothing to do with the episode. (laughs) Who do you think is the greatest performance of the Super Bowl? And I'm going to leave some of the greatest performers at the Super Bowl. And I want you guys to vote. For me, the greatest performance is Ursher. Yeah, you heard it. You heard it here first. And if you want to tussle about it, I'm going to tussle about it after we get the results in next week. So let's go at it. Now, y'all, I was thoroughly impressed by Usher's performance at the Super Bowl this past weekend. So I want to know what you guys think. I think that will definitely get the conversation started. It might get a little heated. And I'm here for it. 
I'm here for it. And if you just want to really tussle about it, then we can, you can leave your comment on Instagram or on Facebook. Either way, let's get into it. You feel me? Let's, let's go. Let's go. And, you know, I wasn't able to see Usher at uh, his residency in Vegas. Don't ask me why, because he was there for almost three years, and I just was unable to go. But I am going down to Atlanta in October to see him, because that's how much of a fan I really am, okay? And I just can't wait. I'm just excited. Are are y'all excited? I don't know. But anyway, let's... Let's get to it. But I'm excited to hear from you guys. I want you guys to know that I am totally, totally looking forward to this next, you know, second half of our our season that we will be getting into in the summer. But so far, I have enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed our season. I know we're just two months into our new year, but I've just loved our interaction so far. So definitely continue to share if you care these episodes with your friends and family. Um, You know, until next time, this is Murder in the Black. You guys know what I'm going to say. Have a great weekend with your loved ones, whoever you're choosing to share with, even if it's just with your kids over some popcorn and a good movie. Or just by yourself, doing some self-care. Whatever you choose to do, have some fun. We will see you next week. Until next time, this is Murder in the Black. I love you. Bye.